Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Go. Come on. All right. Um, welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And usually for this podcast, we talk about two Montana books, one from the past and one from the present. Um, and for the last couple of months, we've been planning to do uh, an episode with Richard Wheeler from Livingston and uh, one other book. But Richard is actually in uh, hospice care right now. And so we decided to break away from our usual format for this episode and just focus on Richard's work because he's a pretty remarkable guy and um, we just thought he deserved uh, one of his own shows, one of a show that focuses solely on him. Right, and I so, think also because uh, even though he's a very successful Montana writer, I don't think a lot of people know about him. Yes, and I think that um, there's a reason for that and I thought that's good place where we could start so Richard has published 80 novels um, some of them under different names but he wrote them all you know I think for a lot of people and I, I know this was definitely true for me you know because he'd published so much and because he published a lot of it in the western genre I had a definite prejudice against his work before I even picked up one of his books <laughs> that's kind of interesting can you explain that? I mean, why? What do you mean by well, prejudice? Well, you know, there's there's sort of a general uh, snobbery toward Western novels. I think, especially among writers, you know. Uh, plus, I had read. You know, I picked up. I felt compelled, or sort of obligated, really, to read a couple of uh, Zane Grey and Louis Lamour <laughs> books to just to see what the deal was, why they were so popular. And, well, you picked I mean, the two worst. Really... What's that? You picked the two worst to start with. <laughs> I think you're right. Because, <laughs> yeah, the quality of the writing was, I was just really appalled. I mean, they were obviously good storytellers, which I think is true of a lot of genre writers that are popular. Um, but, yeah, the quality of the writing was, I was just uh, amazed how bad they were. <laughs> you know, one other thing I think that might be relevant to... Uh, to Richard Wheeler versus um, Louis L'Amour is that Louis L'Amour is often criticized for having, you know, 280 versions of the same book. Yes, exactly. Whereas I don't think yeah, and, that's true of Richard. Yeah, Richard, um, well, for one thing, part of the reason for that, too, is that he based a lot of his stories on, on actual people. Um, so he did a ton of research to... Um, tell the stories of these people and so there was definitely not a formula um, and he was just a better writer i mean he really uh, is his an amazing writer novels were so much more character um driven and uh, so, yeah, he writes a great sentence so he 
He published 20 books alone in the the series called the Barnaby Sky series, which was a character that he created. And, you know, I, I was thinking for most writers, 20, 20 novels in one series would be a whole career. And yet he had another 60 novels on top of that. <laughs> Plus, he didn't even get published until he was almost 50 years old, which is, to me, the most amazing that really part is of the whole story. <laughs> remarkable. And he, it just... I mean, he must do nothing but really write. Well, that's what you'd think. But on top of that, he was also working as the acquisitions editor for a publisher that was uh, pretty high in the in the Western genre field. So he he read who knows how many novels and helped edit them uh, eight novels a year for I don't know how long. But so he was he was cranking it out just. To, So let me let me just read a little bit from Richard published a memoir a few years ago called An Accidental Novelist and it talks a little bit about and we can go into a little more detail about this but it talks about how he ended up becoming a novelist. Okay. So this is the opening. Here I am a novelist. Who would have imagined it? Certainly not anyone who knew me during my first 40 years. By some mysterious process, I ended up a storyteller, and I did it while clinging to the mast of a sinking ship. I have written more than 60 Western and historical novels for such publishers as Doubleday, Forge, Ballantyne, Fawcett, Bantam, Pinnacle, Signet, Walker and Company, M. Evans, and Sunstone. Add a few short stories to that. I've received various awards along the way and more favorable reviews than I can remember. I've had a handful of unfavorable ones that I remember, too. It was not my youthful intention to write fiction. I had settled on journalism as a vocation and hoped someday to become a pundit. That would be a fine life. I would wear horn-rimmed glasses, a tweed jacket, and a bow tie, and impress the world with my erudition and wisdom. I would live happily in some noble mansion, and two or three times... A week, I would write my wisdom to a metropolitan newspaper, wire my wisdom to a metropolitan newspaper such as the New York Times. I would be married to an elegant and wise woman, entertain important people at my dinner table, study the day's news as it arrived by teletype in my private study, and then I would whip out my columns and hand them to some little twit who would hasten to the nearest telegraph office. And I would enjoy the fruits of my wisdom, a fine salary, a secure position, the pleasure of influencing national politics and public policy, and of course an award or two, maybe even a Pulitzer. Wow. <laughs> so that captures a lot of Richard's personality. He's, he has a wonderful sense of humor, very self-deprecating. Um, if you met him in person, um, he's very tall. He's about 6'2", probably. Um, but he has uh, such a calm and quiet, gentle demeanor that there's no way he would um, offer to tell anyone what he does for a living or how accomplished he's been, which is just, you know, part of his charm. He's just a wonderful guy. How did you meet him, Russell? Well, Sue Hart, um, who was a professor at MSU Billings, uh, Eastern Montana College before that. She was a professor there for, I think, 60 years in the end. Yeah. She and Richard met 
when uh, Richard was in the newspaper business in Billings, Sue's husband was also a newspaper man, so they met that through that connection. And uh, in later years, after Sue and Sue had been divorced, um, Richard and Sue met up again, and they decided to get married. <laughs> um, so Sue never left her Billings home, and live, and Richard was very comfortable up in Livingston. So they they lived apart, but they were married for twenty years. <clears throat> wow! So I met I met Richard through Sue, and uh, you know I always loved running into him. Yeah, I imagine I I never got the opportunity to meet uh, either one of them, but yeah, that's a shame. Um, yeah, you would have liked both of them. Yeah, I really admired Sue's Sue's writing, you know, on Montana literature. Sue knew everyone, and she just was such a great fan of Montana writers. Just a great supporter, and always was working hard to get the word out about new people. I mean, she was the moderator of the very first panel I did in a at a book festival, and. She just made me feel so welcome. Of course, I was a nervous wreck. So, yeah. anyway. <laughs> well, no, and she, yeah. you know, the first short story I ever published, she gave it a rave review, and I forget what. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah. And I actually. What was that published in? It was in the book called The New Montana Story, uh, edited oh, by okay, Rick. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so Richard started out as a newspaper man, and as you mentioned uh, when we were talking about this before, um, he really used that to his advantage, um, especially in the Butte book that we were going to talk about. Um, Richest Hill on Richest Earth. Richest Hill on Earth. And One of the main characters is a newspaper guy, and you can really tell that he knows that world the way he captures that character. Yeah, and you know when we were when we were talking earlier, I I mentioned something about the few novels I've looked at. Um, quite a few num- quite a few of his novels involve newspaper. Man, yeah, and I didn't realize that, um, you know, he's getting that from his own experience. But yeah, he nailed it in that that book. Yeah, I love the way he described the the working conditions, how different they were back in the Copper King days. These guys, like, they were constantly covered with ink and you know, <laughs> yeah. dirty. And that character in from... uh, Richest Hill on Earth is also just you know kind of a mercenary. Uh, shill like he just he sells himself to the highest yeah. bidder. Yeah, which was pretty common in those days for the for the newspaper guys in the in that realm. Like the, all you know, all three Copper Kings hired guys to come in and run their newspaper dirty work for him and for their own newspaper. The other thing about that book and this topic that really struck me was that he wrote it not long after the Citizens United decision about uh, money and politics. And I couldn't help but think that that book was, you know, as much a comment on what was going on with journalism today as it was about, you know, the Copper King era. And that, I think, goes yeah, back I to... Yeah, I would a, not be surprised at all if that was intentional on his part. I think that's another... You know, when you mentioned that his westerns are not like Louis L'Amour, I think that's a, another big difference is that, um, you know, Louis L'Amour doesn't have any pretensions of trying to comment on what life is like today. But a really good yeah. genre writer, you know, whether it's science fiction or, you know, the western, it is somehow about, you know, the world we live in. Yeah, and I think um, he also 
you know, one of the things that you see a lot in those old Western books and films is that, you know, there's the characters are so one-dimensional. Right. Especially the women characters. And Richard was fantastic at creating women characters. So Right, and the like, richest hill on earth. The, I mean, the main hero, heroine, is uh, a woman. Red Alice. Red Alice. Yeah, he told this he tells this book the story in Richest Till on Earth from quite a few different perspectives. Like one of them is from um Al- William Clark's perspective and and he also goes into Heinz's point of view a few times. Right. Um but he's got a couple of women characters. There's a a woman who's sort of a high-class escort and then Red Alice who I mean her her life was so typical of women from that time. I mean, she's working to the bone just to keep her family alive, and then her her husband gets killed, and so she has to uh, try to figure out a way to make a living. And one of the one of the uh, union bosses actually sells her to another guy. Says, "You've got to marry this guy," and she just refuses to do it. Yeah. He nailed that character. I wanted to read actually a little bit. Oh, that's great. As an example of how good he was at taking you into the world of the people that he wrote about. So this is from Red Alice's point of view. And it's right after Sean Brophy, her husband, was killed. It struck her that she needed to make an unusual decision and one she would never tell anyone about. She needed to decide whether to grieve for Sean Brophy. She wasn't sure she grieved for him at all. Wasn't sure she missed him. Wasn't sure she would ever yearn for his attentions in their bed. Wasn't sure but what he'd made her life harder. What did he give her but pails of dirty diapers? Sometimes he drank up the pay before she saw it, and then they could hardly feed themselves. On the other hand, he had a quick smile and a quick hand when it came to grabbing a handful of her, and she liked that. And most of the time, he did bring the brown pay envelope home. And he did no harm to the children. He didn't beat them or anything, even when he yelled at them. And once he took her on a picnic, and sometimes they went to a party together. So maybe she should grieve him after all. He was better than nothing. (laughs) She decided she would grieve him for a little while. She didn't have anything black, but she could find a black rosette or a black armband and wear that. And then people would know that she was pining for singing Sean. She could grieve maybe a week. And then decide about a marriage. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, it's a brilliant paragraph or two. And he condenses a lot of realities of Butte in that era. You know, the compulsion yes. to uh, get married for a woman and the reality of losing husband after husband in the mines. Or... So you wrote a book about Butte literature, Literary Butte, and I know you considered this one of the better examples from the, all the books you read that were set in Butte. I really did. Um, it ranks up there in my mind with um, Richard K. O'Malley's uh, Mile High, Mile Deep, which we also talked about on Breakfast in Montana. Yeah, that was a, I was so glad you introduced me to that book. That was a fantastic book. Well, did, did, Yeah, this one ranks right up there. Yeah, it really does. And the other thing I, I would say about it is that of all, you know, the, the bulk of Butte literature is the story of the Copper Kings. And 
Sure. That story by now is so threadbare and overtold. It, I think it's a real challenge for a writer to pick that up and try to do it again. And he really yeah. rose to the occasion. Um, so, you know, a lot of the Butte novels aren't about the Copper Kings, like Mile High, Mile Deep is not about the Copper Kings. Right, yeah. But if you're going to tell that story, you know, very few people can, can pull it off like he did. And, uh, like I said, make it relevant to today. And right. I think I said somewhere in Literary Butte that, you know, at the level of the sentence, he's he's a lot like John Updike. Which, you know, is... The, I think that's probably, the to me, the most... Um, baffling part of what Richard's career is that, you know, well, he's won six Spur Awards. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that know that he's an ama- he's a quality writer. Right. Um, but because of the Western genre, I don't think he's probably, he's considered, he's taken as seriously by the literary world as he should be, you know, um, because there's just this natural tendency to think that Westerns are lower quality but um his like you said the quality of i mean he not only does he spin an amazing tale and he's got a great gift for you know creating a plot line that you're just really hooks you in even if he's doing several different points of view right but the quality of writing i mean it's there and the fact that he was able to write that many books and still keep the quality that high just says a lot about what an, an incredibly natural, gifted writer he was. No, I'm I'm totally with you. And I think that, you know, in academia especially, or among the literati, there is this kind of looking down your nose at genre fiction, but I think it's only because they're looking at examples of it not done very well, or they don't realize that, you know, all literary fiction, to some degree or another, is genre fiction yeah right. it's kind of a false a false dichotomy really and i think the mistake is to assume you know like maybe you did at the beginning that louis lamour and zane gray are the standard bearers and so anybody who wants to write like that is already you know starting um at a disadvantage you're you know if you're going to write right right if you're going to choose to write a Western, you're sort of pigeonholing yourself. But to go back to something you said earlier, I think it is tied up with pretension. And the fact yeah. that he doesn't have any pretensions sort of uh, exonerates him from those charges. Whereas literary right, writers exactly. tend to be so pretentious. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't do any navel-gazing at all. I mean, it's all about the characters and, you know, what's the impact of the time they're living in on their lives. Right. And it's relevant. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, I guess for me, I've, I've told you before, my kind of litmus test is if I'm not sucked into the story in the first 10 pages, I figure life is too short. I have to go on to something else. And <laughs> right. and with his book, there was none of that. It was like immediately. None. No. Yeah. Which, Takes me to, uh, I just wanted to read one other thing, and this was his own response to uh, when I, I wrote an article about him a f- couple of years ago. And I, the question I asked him was, um, 
how do you approach writing stories set in the West? What's what's different about your approach? Yeah. And this is what he said. <clears throat> I discovered that Western fiction is really Southern fiction. It sells well only in the South, especially Texas. It sells thinly down the Rockies and into the Southwest. Why? It's because its protagonists are typically angry ex-Confederates drifting west. Their goal is not to render justice or make the world a better place, but to prove their manhood. But this has little to do with character or idealism and everything to do with toughness and an itchy trigger finger. Typical Western shootout stories are dull and unsatisfying because character's absent. Violence is an end in itself. So in spite of a few powerful stories such as High Noon or Shane or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, gunfight westerns are a hollow art form. I prefer stories that test the characters and their integrity, which is why I turn to historical and biographical fiction. Wow, that's pretty... So he had a different view of it like from the beginning. And it's interesting that he mentioned Dorothy um, Johnson in there because she's somebody who springs to mind when I read... His work also, it's, you know, she had the yes. same kind of attention to character. And it's almost like the Western setting is incidental to it. Right. They're just well-written books that happen to take place in the West, basically. I agree. You know, just in the same way that, you know, Philip K. Dick's books are awesome. They just happen to be set on Mars or in the future, <laughs> you know. It's it's right. really there great is. storytelling. And he just liked that genre. So why not? Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, how he ended up writing Westerns because, you know, you meet the guy. I mean, he he doesn't he doesn't put on any pretense about being a cowboy. He wears khakis and white button down shirts, you know. Right. Um, And he's never he's never been a hunter or a fisherman. He's 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 a homebody. Yeah. And so what drew him to Westerns is that he was living down in the southeast I think it was New Mexico, maybe Arizona, and um, he just heard some, from somebody that Westerns are, you, you can make a lot of money <laughs> writing Westerns, so he started writing this book, and it turned out that there was a neighbor living not too far from him, and somebody told this guy, hey, there's a guy down here trying to write a book, and this guy showed up at his house one day. And uh, just knocked on the door and said, hey, uh, my name's Otis Carney, and I just wanted to uh, introduce myself. I heard you're trying to write a book. And so Otis Carney had written quite a few really um, well-received Western books and actually did a lot of screenplay writing in Hollywood for Westerns. And he comes in, and they start talking, and Richard tells him what he's doing, and the guy says, well, let me read it. And... um, so Richard gives him the manuscript, and Otis Carney took it home and basically tore it to shreds <laughs> and uh, came back and said, your character, the basic advice he gave him was that the character, the main character, was too perfect, like he didn't, he wasn't real. Yeah. And, you know, Richard, uh, and this is a testament to his character, I think, um, instead of being put out or discouraged, he started the whole book over and uh thanks to that guy i mean he he started cranking him out and like three books in he was already nominated for a spur award which is amazing i mean he 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 had a gift 
clearly from the beginning. Right, and there's something in there about, you know, maybe you have to be almost 50 before you realize that when somebody <laughs> tears apart a book, it, you know, it, it is for your own good, especially if they have a bunch under their belt that... Yeah. You know, I think too many young I'm sure writers didn't have tell, ego. You, know, you don't have any talent or you're not going to be any good at this. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure there must have been <laughs> something like this has got a lot of promise, but man. Um, do you know has he done the same for other writers? I mean, has he mentor he must have if he Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned that he was the acquisitions editor for the I can't remember which publisher it was. It might have been Walker. And um, I'm sure working with him as an editor must have been fabulous. And he actually, uh, my last novel, I asked him, I offered to pay him to read it, and he would not take any money for it. He he read it and gave me some great feedback. I mean, I'm sure he's done that for a ton of people. So you're um, yeah, you're talking about a, Arbuckle or the more recent? Yeah, one? Arbuckle. So, you know, I, I think more than anything, what I just wanted to accomplish with this was to get the word out that this guy needs to be appreciated more, especially in Montana. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of good writers here, obviously, but for some reason he's never been, you know, he's his name doesn't come up very often as one of the better ones, and he should, really. I agree, and that's, you know, it's an interesting dynamic in Montana with you know, the Missoula scene versus Livingston. Yeah. It is interesting um, who gets all the acclaim. Um, and then, right. you know, some of the best-known Montana writers hardly spend any time here. You know, Norman McLean's The River Runs Through It. He wrote that in Chicago. And Mr. Doig, he didn't live in Montana for most of his the last, I don't know, 30 years of his life, probably. So, yeah, it is an interesting... The criteria is... You just never know. And, you know, I think, if anything, the goal in discussions of literary criticism um, should be to separate out taste. I mean, a lot of it boils down to taste. Right. But I do think... Yeah, that's true. There is some objective something about, you know, the cream that rises to the top, I, I think. Mm-hmm quite often and this is true of music too you know it's not always the most talented um, right. bands that make it it's not all the the most talented writers who get to the top but it seems like a writer like this who should be at the top you have to ask why is you know why isn't somebody like yeah. this taken more seriously yeah cuz he's got the he's got the combination of great storytelling and great craft, you know, um, which is pretty rare. For our next episode, we've got uh, two poets in the queue. Um, Michael Earl Craig. Yes. Earl Craig used to be the, he was the Montana Poet Laureate uh, before the current one. And his poetry, I just love his poetry because it's got a great sense of humor to it but also great depth yeah I love he's it got too. a new book coming out at the end of february i think and then we're pairing him up with uh ed Leahy, uh another butte 
writer. Uh, I think of Ed Leahy as another one of those writers who never really got his due, although I think he is now, posthumously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in my opinion, he he's... He died about 10 years ago? Yeah, 2011. Um, mm. Just a phenomenal poet, and, you know, to my taste, uh, I would rather read Leahy than... Richard Hugo, although I realize that's probably anathema around here. <laughs> um, but he he put out a book just last year, uh, moving on the last poems of Ed Leahy, his friend uh, Mark Gibbons, when he died, cleaned out his apartment and rescued about forty. Yes, and that book was published by Drumlum and the Drumlum and Institute, who are proud sponsors of Breakfast in Montana. So we'll uh, look forward to talking about those two guys. And um, thanks a lot for joining us for this episode. We'll see you next time on Breakfast in Montana. Breakfast in Montana is produced and edited by Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Thanks again. Nasty old cricket in